0: Well, hello, boys and girls. Guess what? This is a new episode of the localization podcast. My name is Andre Zito and this one will be episode number 36. My guest for today's episode is Gilad Nino. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. I think I said it in a very Spanish way. Gilad used to work for Microsoft for nearly 20 years and because he comes from Israel and he speaks Hebrew. He shall be known as the Baidai guy. Therefore, we spent most of our time talking about the technology behind Baidai and the issues with Baidai. For those of you that don't know what Baidai means, it refers to bi directional languages that can be read and written from left to right and also mostly from right to left. This would be mainly Arabic and Hebrew. In his career at Microsoft, Gilad has been pushing a lot for a robust and inclusive design because a lot of these issues with Baida languages and with localization in general can be prevented if you have a better design at source. In this interview, you can find out why Spotify and Netflix did such a good job for the Hebrew market, but the tech giants like Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and Apple kind of drop the ball and don't care that much about the Hebrew users anymore. Why is it like that? And what is even worse, I learned why the customers don't have the power to do much about this. And this is where Gilad comes in. He's a very proactive guy. And he really wants to change the whole world, I would say, to make the user experience for by users a lot better. So in this interview, we will also find out more about his initiative and how you can participate and help him. So without further ado, this is episode number 36 with Gilad Almozniño. Please enjoy. Gilad, finally, again. Yeah, (laughs) round two. (laughs) (laughs) version (laughs) 2.0 SP SP1. Let's go. Welcome to the podcast, first of all. Right. Thank you. Great to be here. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Not too bad.
0: You have a special time in in a month, right? <laughs> when it comes to-
1: yeah, 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 yeah. And we'll get back into that
0: probably later. Yeah, in- maybe we can talk about it later. So where exactly are you right now?
1: I'm uh, in a small town uh, in North Israel, uh, not too far from Haifa. Haifa is the big city, uh, a small town called Kreativon, about um, 15,000
0: people. Is that your hometown?
1: Yeah, same town. I uh, I I was born there. I actually live in the same house uh, that I, I'm 42 now. So, uh, back to my childhood home. Yeah.
0: I remember when we were doing the recording for the first time. You were a little bit mysterious about your age. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. I was just listening to the recording and before we started doing this, and I think you were saying like, okay, now if you tell me about the eye issues when you first notice them, then we will guess how old you are. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Because uh, I think you were you were asking about, uh, you know, uh, when was the first time you saw Baida issues? And then I said, wow, you're going to find out very quickly. I uh, I, uh, when I first saw a computer, it was running DOS. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Okay. But you didn't get into localization in Israel, right?
1: No, no, Um, I actually moved to the States uh, when I was young. And um, um, and uh, I think when I was around 20, a friend of mine said, you know, um, I was going through college, and and a friend of mine said, hey, you know, Microsoft is looking for Hebrew native speakers to test out the latest version of Windows that's coming out, which was Windows ME. And he said, you know, it might be a fun gig, they don't pay a lot. You know, it was like 15 bucks an hour or something, but, you know, you might enjoy it. And, and I had plans like I, I thought, you know, hey, I'll just work at this gig for about six months or so, save enough money to go to India. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and that's that was my expectation, uh, ended up being about 20 years in the company, <laughs> you know. Um, so, Why did you yeah. want to
0: go to India?
1: I don't know. I I just you know it was one of those things where maybe maybe I was spiritually connected uh, to to India or something. Just you know something there was you know
0: the adventure. Was it supposed to be your first time to visit India? Or- yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I haven't been, I actually haven't been there at all. <laughs> so I never got to go to India, never got to it. Um, but um, it was just one of those things when you're, I don't know, when I was 20 and I wanted to be adventurous, I said, I, I'd go to India or something. Right. Um, so that's, that was the motivation. There was nothing behind it. Um, but yeah, I ended up uh, taking a rather long trip at Microsoft, which was just as entertaining, I think.
0: <laughs> what what made you stay at Microsoft for so long? Like, how do you remember your first work experience with them when you didn't think about the job very seriously?
1: I I always thought about the job very seriously, but I think uh, uh, I, I I don't know what the drive behind the job was. I I initially started as quality assurance, right? And um, I think very quickly people realized, you know, they offered me a full time position within less than a year because my my work was was very well, very good. Um tends to be a lot more buggier, but it also requires that the person looking at it has a very deep understanding of what's going on, you know. Um, but I think very quickly they realized that, um, you know, you can't you can't have me just doing quality assurance because the issue I would find, a lot of the issues were design changes. And so having design changes come at a very late stage is a very big problem. Um, And so very quickly, you know, I kept the quality assurance title for quite a while, maybe like 12 or 13 years, but my job was nowhere close to quality assurance. Uh, I was basically free to do whatever I wanted in terms of impact on the product and vision. And so the title really wasn't anything that drove me ever the the team the the title it was never an issue right like it was never something that i felt bound by so my i I was always trailblazing
0: if you will when you had this freedom was it related only to hebrew or was it about internationalization and vital languages in general
1: i think the fact that I was so good at what I did for Hebrew and Arabic and Baida in particular allowed me to venture to other areas as well, you know. um, Sometimes the issues come out with the Baida languages a lot more clear than they would um, on other languages. And so when you're able to take an issue you found on Baida and say, wow, but if you think about some of the other locales, they're going to get impacted by this, then quickly you start not just thinking about Baida, but just thinking about the larger picture of internationalization. Um, some, some of the issues are design changes, some of the issues are technical issues, but a lot of, I think, the internationalization work is being able to project a vision forward for a product. And that takes very special people, right? It's not, not everybody can do that. And I think I was very good at it. Uh, like And I enjoyed it and I had the total freedom. Um, And, and, you know, some managers loved my freedom and some managers didn't know how to they didn't know what to do with it, because I'll give you an example for many years, my impact was with, you know, design changes and bugs and making sure that we're shipping something that's relevant to the market, the buy die market or internationalization in general, but take a manager that's being pressured to have their team produce automation. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense for somebody like me to sit there and write automation when I'm making significant changes to the product, design changes, Mm -hmm. you know? And so for me, it was always a struggle to do the bare minimum, to keep the managers happy with the formal title, and then make sure that I'm driving innovation um, across the product and challenging myself, you know? I'm always here for that challenge.
0: When you talked about fixing or improving the experience for Byday and how it affects the other languages, are we talking about, let's say, fixing the root cause, which would have an impact on the source English product?
1: Yeah, yeah. Even sometimes you're able to some of the best design changes basically reduce bottlenecks. You know, you want to produce a robust enough design that can handle all these different variations of locales and localization or whatever. But if the designers are robust enough, the user experience is great, right? Both for the user, both for the developer developing on that platform. It's, it's a win-win situation. So I guess being somebody like me, my, 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 my I, I guess my, my best qualities is being able to reduce these bottlenecks and make the design or at least the people working on the design think that Uh, they have to produce something that's robust enough, so that down the road, or uh, they have something that's uh, sustainable, that works, that makes sense, and not some patch.
0: When we're talking about robustness, this may be a stupid question. But do we always want to have just one source and one design for all the languages? Or have you come across any examples where you might have a different source for by languages?
1: Well, I, I, I don't think so, but but um, I'll give you an example, okay? So one of my first ideas when I came to Microsoft as a full-time employee and during my interview, I said, I have an idea, you know, this was 20 years ago. This is like 2000, I think, or 1999. And I said, we need to have gender-based localization. So the UI strings are based, basically translated for the user with well, um, female form and, and mas- masculine-feminine form, okay? But not, not on the same UI. So basically, if you're a male, you can select Hebrew male version. Or if you're a female, you can select if you choose Hebrew female version. And um, I think that solved a huge problem because, you know, the machines today, even, even today, they refer that in some languages, you just can't work around the gender issue when it comes to localization. And so the, mach- the, the translation often refers to in masculine form. That's not very inclusive. And so I think today with the technology of machine translation, we can actually take the Hebrew source and do the, the analysis and application of you know masculine to feminine form rather easily and rather uh, cost effective uh in terms of of resources but you know what's stopping us from doing that so like the resource loader on windows won't allow you to have more than two versions of uh, more than one version of hebrew so you're never going to be able to put this other version in there um, so that's one example where the design isn't robust enough. You're not able to do two versions of Hebrew, or two versions of Arabic. Um, by the way, when when uh, when we when I brought up the idea, one of the uh, uh, one of the locales that thought it was great was the Japanese locale, because Je- the Japanese the the Japanese market thought, wow, we can create a version of Japanese for uh, children. You know because they're they're having a hard time reading the u i because they're not at that level yet, and we we could use a second version of Japanese so that if you're you know seven to nine years old you get a a version that you can read and so that just goes to show that you know one thing that came from you know thinking about gender uh inclusiveness for Hebrew and Arabic uh quickly turns into age inclusiveness for Japanese. And you just can't do that today with Windows, for example, because they're not able to, to have two versions of the same language loaded.
0: So what happened to that idea?
1: Uh, the funny story was I came to my, I think it was like the director level manager that hired me into Microsoft. And he was a great guy. I, I, I'm still in touch with him today. Bjorn Redding. I think he's a VP of internationalization at Facebook and he, uh, is actually the guy that invented MUI, the resource loading technology that allows the localization to be separate from the the code. Um, and uh, and I came to him and I said, Bjorn, I have this great idea for gender-based localization. And this is 1999, you know, people are still using the same profile at home. They have one computer. It's not like today your phone and your Facebook and whatever. And he, and he laughed and he said, well, me and my wife, he's German. He said, me and my wife, we use the same profile. And so you want the machine to Refer to me in mass in a feminine form. I, I don't think that's a good idea. And, and I laughed and I said, he was a great guy. It was all a good conversation. I said, you know, Bjorn, you don't understand me. You're not a woman. And, and he, he, he looked at me. And he's like, you want to talk to my skip level? And his skip level was, was Lori Brunel. And, and I had a chat with her. Um, in general, I think they, They thought it was a good idea, but the, I think at the time they just couldn't allocate the resources to have the resource loader modified to have the idea come, come through. So, um, uh, I think this, you know, 20 years later, same issue for Windows, at least, um, maybe for Facebook, you know, where, where that's not an issue. They can have another version of the language. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah. But so that idea, um, today I'm actually, Pushing that idea as part of my work as the uh, chairman of the Hebrew uh, uh, Support Committee in Computer Systems at the Standard Institute of Israel, uh, we are uh, looking to push that idea forward in, uh, in one way or another.
0: Where would you push this?
1: <sighs> wow. Um, I, ideally, we'll start with a local standard um, and then hopefully roll it up to W three C or Unicode. Um, I'm not sure what the challenges there what what kind of challenges we're facing when we when we approach those standardization bodies. So um it's not my top priority as a chairman, but it's certainly a work item that I'd love to see happen. It has impact by the way on a lot of things. It's not just uh, you know, being able to localize for Hebrew and Arabic in a more inclusive way. It also, I think, has an a impact on other things like machine translation that learns off existing resources or uh, text prediction and spell checking all kind of feed off existing strings and existing language out there. So the minute, the minute you make the language more inclusive, the better those technologies are going to be Uh, in terms of
0: accuracy. So let's go back to when you were young before (laughs) you joined Microsoft. And let's 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 repeat the question that you already spoiled what we discussed last time. So as a user before you started working in the industry, have you noticed any issues like that? Or is it only after you joined Microsoft?
1: I think because of the years that I started, you know, DOS didn't have a a UI, so that wasn't an issue. And then just interoperability those days just didn't exist, you know. Unicode came into play many years later. Um, So I didn't really pay attention to those issues because software wasn't even available in most cases in in, in languages like Hebrew and Arabic. let alone an input experience of any kind. And so I think it was only Windows 95 or 98 when Microsoft finally released a Hebrew and Arabic version of, of Windows. And um, I might've gotten a glimpse of that, but just to make, kind of put things in perspective, Windows, I think 98 came two and a half years. I mean, the Hebrew version of, of Windows 98 came probably a, Two years after the original release, just to show you how difficult the release process was at those those years, and um, so I, I I wasn't exposed to those things very much before I started working for Microsoft. And but the one thing about you know going into Microsoft and and starting to work on Hebrew and Arabic version almost immediately because it's a pre-release build. I mean the issues are so clear right? Like you're seeing UI mirroring bugs and all and text layout bugs. And those were probably the two biggest bug categories. Uh, Those are very easy to spot for the trained eye.
0: So yeah, let's talk about the issues in a bit more detail. And maybe you can also compare it to the situation right now. Um, Right. um, Let's try with software.
1: Software, right and windows in particular i mean any any software but i think the two biggest challenges for anybody going in this market is uh ui layout ui design because the hebrew and arabic markets require that uh the ui layout um is uh repositioned so it flows from right to left it f- so and that's a, a significant amount of resources that have to be invested in making sure that that happens correctly it's not a, a switch you flip and everything just magically happens. And that, you know, and we'll talk about later about probably how engineering systems and design systems today just just don't do that well. Um, and so for a developer, it's not about switching something and making sure that the UI layout is is, uh, is working correctly. You know, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. Imagine um, it's not just the, just the UI, it's the experience, right? You have a lot of things that you have to take into consideration uh, when you reposition the u i to flow from right to left, um, because not everything flows purely from right to left, and take for example a media control uh, if you have a multimedia player um, the play button the back and forward buttons, next track forward track buttons are actually left to right oriented. What happened is the markets received you know take and cassette players and c d players from you know, that were just manufactured in probably in China, and, and that's what they received. So they're used to seeing the play button flow from left to right. They're used to having the, the track controls flow from right uh, left to right. And they, they also want to see the progress bar on something like that flow from left to right. And so if a developer approaches a media player that's built for English and it just says mirror this, all of a sudden everything flows from right to left, it might look okay, but it might just, the user is not going to like it. Um, and so there's a lot of thought that has to go into what makes sense there in terms of mirroring the UI. Um, there's also a lot of back end work that has to do with um, content. So imagine if you have like a swipe control for flipping between pages on a book Okay. So usually if you're flipping a a page on a book, like a PDF reader, where the pages are spread horizontally, then, um, you'd flip from right to left to go to the next page on English, right? And so for Hebrew, you have to go, if the, if you'd, you'd think that in Hebrew, you'd have to go from left to right to go forward. And so if we, if we want to circle back to robust design, it's not about hard coding the direction because you never know what kind of book you're going to open so imagine having a ui that's english and you open a hebrew book and now you want to be smart enough to understand what the content is and then make your ux interaction adjust appropriately that's robust design that's perfect that's natural I think I actually have a patent pending application on that <laughs> particular. I do. I uh, I did apply for a patent for it. Um, you know, we had a, a, a exactly that. We had a PDF reader that had the function of being able to swipe to flip the page on Windows, and uh, we wanted. I wanted the design to be robust enough to allow both directions uh, based on the content. But it's really hard to understand what the content of a document is today in terms of language. Like, how do you how do you know what what the language of the document is, and then adjust the layout appropriately? Um, and so, do you have a good solution for that? How would you do it?
0: I think when I was working uh, at Moravia, so my early days <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah, uh, I know that one of my team members, uh, an LE localization engineer once we were doing a delivery for Microsoft, by the way, because I started working for Microsoft, right, Uh, Windows, by the way, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) And and he he swept due to file management, uh, inconsistency, he swapped Chinese simplified and Chinese traditional. Mm -hmm. So of course, the files. So of course, it was a it was a big mistake. And then we were asking our R&D department to come up with some way to check Uh, what language the files are. And you're basically trying to locate the unique characters that are only applicable to a certain language, but I'm not sure about Hebrew, do you have any specific characters or something that's only used for Hebrew?
1: Yeah, you could probably look at the Unicode range and say this is it. But um, that that isn't going to be 100% bulletproof, right?
0: Because sometimes you don't have those characters.
1: You might, you know, if, yeah, you might have, you know, you might have a mixed document with English and Hebrew and you never know, but the user knows when you open the document, what, what language the document is in, right? Like if you just stare at it for a second, you know what language it is.
0: But when you said mixed English and Hebrew, how would it look like? Like there's only a pieces of English in a otherwise completely Hebrew text or some parts of it could be English and Hebrew?
1: I mean, imagine a technical document where you have a Hebrew technical document with a lot of English. You know, how do you, what, what, what percentage of, of measurement do you have to make sure it's a Hebrew or English document, right? It's a very tricky question. -hmm. Um, more so on content on the internet, for example. Uh, my solution was very, very simple. It wasn't about that. I didn't want to go scan the document at all. I thought the user do exactly what document they're looking at and guess what the initial swipe direction is the direction mm. of the document so the minute the user swipes you know which direction uh the document has to flow and so that's a i have a i have a patent pending application i think i don't know if it went through or they canceled it but uh, that was my basically patent pending moment <laughs> if you will to make sure designers are robust enough Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's about uh, robust design and user experience and UI, UI layout and directionality in UI layout. The second biggest issue with by
0: in particular is text interaction. Yeah, before we before we get into that, I'm wondering, when we we're talking about the, the design, you were saying that some of the controls, they need to stay in a place. So it's not like revert or flip everything globally. So how how are these exceptions handled? Like, can you the design software, you can set some controls at as okay, stay like this all the time and flip
1: I haven't seen a design system to date. Like I I recently looked at Adobe, Adobe has a design product, I forget what it's called. Um, And there was internationalization features like pseudo localization, which was really interesting. But there's nothing about mirroring UI. Um, A lot of the Knowledge today about which controls get mirrored is out there. Like I, I wrote a very robust uh, set of guidelines on how to mirror certain UI elements, and um but the design systems don't take that into account because they just they just don't look at Bida in particular. So it's not like you're able to take your design and any design system and just flip it. And for the design system to be robust enough and smart enough to say, you know. If you have an on-off button that's horizontal, you should probably mirror it. You know, the design system isn't smart enough to say this particular control has to be mirrored. It's also the design system isn't smart enough to say if you're mirroring uh, media control, don't mirror the play button and the back and forward uh, track controls. There's nothing out there that actually does that. Not a design system, not an engineering system. There's like, like it's missing the, like the artificial intelligence to, to, uh, help developers and designers avoid the mistakes, right? It's, it's a blank canvas. And so I think that's one of the biggest steps that the industry has to do with internationalization in general, not just BIDA. By BIDA by is great, but imagine if you had a design system that's robust enough. To help the designers and developers actually jump into a localization project and not be in a position where they're exposed to making some of the inherent uh, errors because they're just they're not aware and the design system didn't didn't you know prevent them from doing that. So we just don't have that today. That tool isn't available in the industry. Um, and 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 then again the internationalization knowledge isn't being in many companies and at least the big ones, isn't isn't being spread effectively enough to make sure that we don't do these mistakes. Mm -hmm. Right. If I look at Facebook or Google or Microsoft or Apple today, they all have mistakes that they ship with bugs. And so I think it's just a reflection of their engineering system and design system that isn't able to help them produce Uh, uh, experience that's a lot more um, a a, a lot better with with lower overhead.
0: I still don't understand it. And maybe you can explain it by telling us what how the mirroring technology works. But what I still don't understand is let's say, okay, I'm a developer, I create something, I don't know anything about by So I'll just flip everything because I read it on the internet. And then I send it for QA. And the QA person like you tells me, okay, this is good, you flip this, but these individual controls here need to be as they are in English. So how would he do it? How can he set it?
1: The, you know, I don't come from a developer background. But uh, my understanding of what developers do is they flip a switch, basically, that says mirror everything. The issue with that that switch is that everything that's inherent there, all the other elements mirror with that. So what happens is a developer, and that's why it's so like, that's why people don't want to go into the buy down markets because the developer has to sit there, do the initial mirroring, which basically mirrors everything. And then all the elements that have to get unmirrored, you actually have to manually go through them and unmirror them. And so the two issues there are one, the technology is kind of like, A bucket of cold water, right? You just like (laughs) you just sit there and like (laughs) you you douse somebody with it, right? And then you go in and you have to do all this tedious work and hope that you did it correctly because not a lot of companies have Baida experts. Right? And going the like one of the easiest things for most languages is you know, go just oh go ask the uh, native speaker. But with the Baida languages, you can't do that because you really have to have somebody who understands user experience to help you understand how to mirror or unmirror things, right? So it's not as easy as asking as a, Hey, Hebrew speaker, you know, if you have one in the office, can you tell me if this is mirrored correctly? You get three types of people. The first one's going to tell you it's mirrored correctly. The second one is going to tell you it's mirrored incorrectly. And the third one's the worst. You know what the third one is? He's the one that hates the the mirrored UI. He's like, "Why do you guys even go through this painstaking process of doing this? Right? You should just use English."
0: <laughs> and so I thought that the third guy was, um, "It's bad, but this is what you need to fix in the design phase."
1: <laughs> no, no, it's the it's the the other, the worst kind, the, the one that hates hates the mirrored UI and just says, "Yeah, you should just not do that." <laughs>
0: but was there was there so far, I got the impression that it's all up to the poor developer to fix this. But was there ever any initiative to move this work to the vendors who are the ones working on localization? Was there anything like this possible in lock studio? Uh, I think maybe
1: in the past, they had some power to do that. I hope they've stopped doing that. Because you know, just having robust system means that you're doing this through the code and not through Mm. the localization layer because that's buggy i mean imagine you know the localizer you know does that incorrectly and then you're trying to figure out whether the code is is introducing the issue or the localizer is introducing the issue and that was a lot of the work for the localizers uh at microsoft to understand whether or not the ui mirroring issue was introduced from the localization process or from the code um and so when the system got really robust um like m- probably 90 plus percent of the mirroring issues were code issues and the localization team was just focused on you know localizing strings um i think the better approach also is to have the feature team that's working on a particular ui own the ui mirroring because they have to also own the experience right they have to have this end to end design, develop, localize, experience. Um, you know, during my time at Microsoft, at least at the end of my tenure as an internationalization expert, we were doing design walkthroughs that basically looked at the design phase of things and I would take things, take uh, mockups in PowerPoint and give them back as mirrored so that the design team understands exactly what has to happen. The developer has a very good blueprint of what work they have to do and so that was microsoft i don't think they do that today by the way Um, i think the the reports i i I published are um are are an indicator that that isn't happening anymore Um, but when it when it was working it was working very very well because it did a a few things it uh, helped educate people inside the company they didn't have to become expert but they had access to an expert they were learning And then, you know, as time went by, two, three years into it, they were able to do a lot of these things on their own and only ask me the really complicated questions, right? And so I think when you're able to integrate internationalization into the process, that's a very basic step. So if the entire design process has an internationalization expert there, you're going to save a lot of time and resources. Uh, you're going to make the release more predictable. You're going to have your bug counts lower. Um, and that worked really, really well. And more so if you have a tool set and an engineering system that prevents people from doing what we call this low-hanging mistakes or the low-hanging fruit, the stupid mistakes. And that doesn't exist today. Uh, just No one has something that works that well.
0: Why do you think the things went out?
1: For for what for Microsoft just in general,
0: for Microsoft or in general,
1: I think just in general you can look at a few companies and say they decided to go internationally and they did very very well. So I'll give you an example: Spotify recently, not recently, but about a year ago, went came into Israel, and I mean, what a delight! They did an awesome job. You know, my, I'm not about criticizing. Companies. I I want them to kind of think about what they do, and and I want to empower them. I want to motivate them. I want them to to do things better. So you know you can look at my reports and say you know he's he's maybe he's sour or something, but it's really not the case. I, I love Microsoft. And I love people there, and I, I want them to do better, right? I want to motivate them. I want to empower them. And, and if you read my reports, you can see what the expected behavior should be, so they can just take those reports and fix everything, right? Um, But when, like, I'll give you the example of Spotify coming into the market. You know, here's, uh, I think one of the things that companies do is when they decide to go into a market, they're intentionally going there. Being intentional is so important. And Spotify nailed it because they were intentional about coming to Israel. They performed UI mirroring with very few issues. They did the text handling inside the application with very few issues. And it's just a delight to get something like that. Um, I thought they did a wonderful job because they were intentional, you know? They were very focused on coming into the market and doing something very, very well. And I think Microsoft and Google and Facebook and Apple were also very intentional at one point going into these markets. The issue with somebody like Microsoft or Google, you know, they've been in the market for 20 years or so, and so they're no longer intentional. As far as they're concerned, they have this check mark, you know, we ship to this market, we've done the work to support it, but they're no longer intentional. And you can see that with the quality of the product, with the robustness of the design. You know, as their design changed, the fundamental technologies kind of stayed behind in terms of internationalization and buy that. So I think being intentional is such a, a, such a fundamental quality to have when you go into a new market. If you want to be successful and, and Spotify does that very well. And most recently, I think also Netflix did a very good job. And that's what we see the last few years are this, uh, you know, the Netflix chart of new users and you know, it's a, it's a beautiful chart. You know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's look at all the growth and all the happy people you have because you're intentional about going into a market with local content and great experience. And so you have to be intentional.
0: I totally get it that when a company is introducing or entering a new market, they want to have the best experience for the users to make the first impression great. Mm -hmm. But in the case of Microsoft, was there no feedback from the user base? Or doesn't it reflect in the in the number of users or the number of sales?
1: Yeah, if you look at Microsoft as an example, and I'm sure other companies are struggling with the same issues, like a lot of these companies has have feedback mechanisms, okay? So some of the feedback mechanisms are just telemetry, right? Nobody's, not a user behind them, but we just get a telemetry reading from the machine that's, you know, says machine is happy, machine is not happy, driver's working, driver's not working, things like that, right? Um, that's one thing. Um, but when it comes to user feedback on design, you know, uh it's 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 a multi-dimensional problem. So take a market like Israel, right? It's a very demanding market in terms of the you know, the resources that need to be allocated to get into the market because of the UI mirroring and tech support. And uh but Microsoft, for example, with the insiders program, um uh, has a huge bucket of feedback, huge bucket of feedback, you know. Israel is 9 million people on a good day when everybody switches on their computers even even if, if they decided to have the uh, I don't know a crowdsourcing sponsored event with everybody sending feedback you get 9 million How does that compare to the Chinese market? Mm-hmm. right <laughs> When you're dealing with a few billion people and so and then you might have some program manager sitting there saying hey, you know you have the small market complaining about Issue compared to the Chinese market, comparing, uh, complaining about an issue. I, I think it it comes to the point where they're not able to scale the feedback program to be locally relevant, and that makes people very very frustrated because they feel like they're getting a a a reduced experience. They feel like a second class citizen. They they don't feel included. You know. It's all about inclusiveness and being able to inclus- inclusively add user feedback regardless of market so that they feel like somebody's tailoring the 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 product for them and so I think with big companies like Microsoft the the feedback from smaller markets is it just gets drowned right mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so and then you have the language barrier and other things right so that's one one uh one uh one aspect, one dimension of the user feedback issue when it comes to international markets in general. The second thing is like, I think that a lot of these companies have unconscious cultural bias when it comes to international feedback. And and I say that in a way of they need to be cognizant of that issue. So I think some people will have an easier time prioritizing a piece of feedback that comes from the market that they're in at that moment so if you're sitting in palo alto and you get a piece of feedback from you know from the united states compared to a piece of feedback from let's say dubai you're probably going to treat the piece of feedback from palo alto united states um, more than you would the piece of feedback from far away. Um,
0: And so is there no country office in Israel, that would be pushing this?
1: So for for all the multinationals, Israel is a high tech nation, right? It's the startup nation. There are plenty of R&D centers here. But the the Israeli R&D center, for example, for Microsoft doesn't deal with the Hebrew version of Windows at all. That, that isn't our, they do cybersecurity, they do uh, artificial intelligence. That's, you know, that's the, that's why this market is so strong in terms of startups. Um, that's what they do. And so it's not about that because, and Microsoft isn't, for example, with the, I've talked to the folks at the Windows Insiders program and I said, you know, you really have to make a local version of the Insiders program. Not, not to say that you have to develop features that are specific to the market, but you want to have people, running the feedback program in their native language, inside the market. You're like one of the things that isn't inclusive about the Windows Insiders program is it's, you know, they're, they're never gonna be able to have the podcast that they do, the live podcast, on a schedule that meets everybody's needs, right? Like you're gonna do it like 12, uh, uh, 11, PM, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific time, you know, somebody in Israel is going to be sitting there at 1 a.m. in the morning going, I don't want to listen to this. And then they're they're not even going to listen to the local feedback, right? Then you're you're back at this huge bucket where you're competing for attention. And that's just depressing, right? Um, and so I think there's a lot of things. The multidimensional issue is with, with that, right? Being inclusive of people is that. Um, the other thing is that I've noticed with certain companies is that Let's say you had some UI clipping on the English version of a feature that you're releasing, right? You'd never release that with that kind of bug. like Let's say it was some major clipping, right? You'd go and fix that. Well, here's where that unconscious cultural bias comes in for international design and localization. The feature team will say, you know, let's see if the customer complains about it. hmm And then your quality bar, you have two standards basically. You have the English standard quality bar, which is the top of the notch. And then you have this, oh, we'll wait to see if they complain about it. And then the you know that the user doesn't want to go that route. They're not gonna complain about something that's broken. They're not your quality assurance team. They're having a horrible experience. They're not gonna reach out. They might even not even use your product down the road, you know? And so I don't think people that have this unconscious cultural bias are cognizant of that, of that approach, right? You just, they do it unconsciously. That's, that's why I'm not angry about it. I think it's an issue that just has to be aired. Uh, and, that, and that's something that I had to, when I was working at Microsoft, it was one of the things that I, you know, I'd, I'd fight for bugs. I, I, I'd fight for bugs till the day like that thing was kicked out the door, right? <laughs> um, it, it would drive people crazy. But what I was actually finding wasn't the technology, wasn't the, it wasn't that, it was the, the bias, right? Like, I don't want my customers to complain about this, this has to go out the door, just like it would for English, without this clipping or without this horrible bug. And so you, you could see that today.
0: You were talking about Spotify and how well, well of a job they did. But you still yeah. mentioned that you noticed some some small issues can you just, I'm just curious, what, what are those?
1: Just certain text you know, when you have, well, first of all, they did UI mirroring very, very well with no issues, which is almost unheard of. I mean, if you, even if you go to settings and stuff, everything is just, it's done very, very well. Um, and so kudos for that. The issue with any application that displays content and you never know what the content is gonna be is that you have to be smart about um displaying that content correctly and so there's talk technology most of the major uh, platforms today will detect whether or not you're displaying content in BiDi or not and then make certain adjustments like layout and alignment so that the content flows from the so that the text flows correctly and so Spotify has just minor issues where sometimes the text isn't aligned correctly when it comes to like showing a I think it was like the artist bio I think or something like that. They're welcome to reach out. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll point it out. More than happy to. Uh, but that's it's really minor because it's a very small fix, right? Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And
1: uh, and so those are the issues where developers even if they nail UI mirroring. You know, Baida is very unique because now you have to have text handling where you don't have to do that for other languages. You know, the text sometimes has to flow from right to left, sometimes have to flow from left to right. And that's what why we talk about robust design. You know, even on English UI, you might have to display Hebrew text from right to left, laid out and aligned from right to left. And so having a robust design that's able to handle that correctly is 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 priceless.
2: Mm-hmm. Because
1: it, it creates a great user experience. And and by the way, today, they don't nobody does that very well, by the way, today. So the technologies that are doing that kind of adjustment are very, very old.
0: Mm-hmm. So does it mean that when I ser- search for Hebrew artist on Spotify, using my English UI, it will show right to left?
1: I, I don't know. Um, it might. I don't know how this is again, this is about a rich internationalization experience. Like imagine looking at you're in Vancouver. Imagine like Googling, sorry, not Googling, but searching for a, a Israeli artist and then having that bio come up, you know, what what's the expectation? Like if, if Spotify has like done things very well, they know that you want to see things in English. So they'll show you the English bio of that artist. I'm in Israel and my UI language is Hebrew. They might show me. The Hebrew version of the of the bio. Even if I googled, if, even if I sorry, search for like the Rolling Stones on Spotify in Hebrew. Um, maybe they have a, a machine translated bio that's in Hebrew, and they can display that, right? Because it's more about like you don't know if the user is multilingual, right? And so you want to be able to tailor the experience to the best of your ability to make sure that it stays in the right language. So I don't know how they do it, but you know, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for them to have you read a Hebrew bio if you don't know Hebrew.
0: Right, right, yeah, makes sense. Right. And so the second thing, when it comes to software the issues that you wanted to talk about, was text input.
1: Well, text text user experience in general, whether it's um, displaying text, we just talked about being able to align content automatically. Um, you know, that's, that's a technology that's 20 years old. You know how they do that, by the way? In most text stacks, whether it's Google, Microsoft, Facebook, whatever, they, um, they try and sample the first few characters of a string. And then if it's, if it's a byte string, like Hebrew or Arabic, then they'll apply the right properties for the alignment and layout. Okay. And so, um, that can go horribly wrong. Because you could have an um, a English string that starts with a Hebrew word. Like if I said Haifa and Tel Aviv are city names in Hebrew and Haifa and Tel Aviv were spelled in Hebrew and that's the beginning of the sentence, then the the rendering engine would think that's a Hebrew string and align it from right to left and then you get a reading order issue. Like the strings go all over the place and that's where you introduced errors and that's why. You know, one of the things for me and the Standard Institute of Israel is to push these technology companies, the platform companies to start reinvesting in technologies to make this experience a lot better. Because we're seeing what we're seeing today is 20 years old. That's 20 year old solution. Imagine how many technology leaps we've done um, to make that experience better. And imagine if you're able to understand, have the machine be smart enough. The platform smart enough to understand language and detect language that has impact for other locales not just bidei and imagine what you can do with that i mean so you really want to get to the position where you understand the string if you're displaying a string what is what is the uh, what is the language that that string is written in uh, so that you can make all kinds of other great experiences and so for us that's a huge thing right because like when it gets wrong and it often becomes like it's when it's often wrong the experience is horrible like imagine having a full sentence aligned incorrectly and every time you try to get to the beginning of the line it's basically all over the place right because it's it's not it's not uh, even Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and so that's a very poor experience um and then On top of that, when it comes to the text input experience and text selection experience, all of that is today on every major platform influenced by directionality of the string. So uh, I'd love to maybe we can integrate into this uh, podcast a demo, a video demo of how bad text selection is on Hebrew and Arabic under certain situations so people can visualize it. You really have situations that aren't very, um, they're not corner cases where the user will try and select text. And, you know, in English, when you select text from left to right, right to left, whatever, it's a, it's a continuous motion. There's no breaking points, right? There's no spaces that are unselected in the middle. Well, in certain situations, when you have like a mixed language strings in Hebrew and English and you start selecting, at, a, at one point the selection becomes um, unlinked. You actually have a big chunk of text that isn't selected in the middle, and the selection process is kind of flipped around and reversed, and then goes in the other direction, and then flips back to the original direction. And um, that has to do with the fact that um, all of these, all of these technologies are based on the Unicode BIDAI algorithm, that's the Unicode Consortium, the big, uh, a standardization body and the by the algorithm there it's a very smart algorithm but it's 20 years old and one of the issues with it is that it's not backed by usability studies right and so one of my biggest um pushes in the standard institute of israel right now is for every standard that we push and one of them is text interaction is to have robust usability studies so that we can back up our our research and standardization efforts with real user data and not just expert assumptions, right? Because I'm an expert, but I'm sure that I'm going to learn some new things about how people use computers, right? And this is one of those prime things where I have to have the data so that I can go to Unicode, my standard, and say, not only is the standard, uh, you know, past rigorous standardization um, uh, requirements in Israel, and it has a bunch of subject matter experts behind it, it also has, here Here are the usability results, right? Like here they are. Um, we actually, I, one of the other things I did is bring into the um, committee uh, experts in, I have a PhD candidate that is doing a PhD on UI mirroring and how that impacts the ability of a user to understand the UI, Yulia Goldberg, remember that name? Uh, And she's also going to be responsible for helping us kind of shape the usability studies around our standardization efforts for UI layout and text interaction. Um, And so we're very, very happy to have, we have another expert. um, We're we're very happy to have these experts come in. We have another couple of experts coming in that are um, uh, leaders in Israel for data visualization. There's no standard today that indicates whether or not you know, a chart from, should flow from right to left or left to right. I've been in the business for 20 years. I can't tell you the answer for that, you know, and here are these people that are in the market and they're experts, but it's very important for me to have them also back up their their standardization efforts with usability studies. Um, so for data visualization, for example, we have some crowdsourcing that was done for uh, user research and we found that uh, the guy that did their the research um, basically found that you know seventy percent of people prefer charts from left to right and thirty percent of you know by speakers prefer charts from right to left and so how do you create a standard that's robust enough to accommodate both of those you know how do you how do you make sure that you don't trump uh thirty percent of your users right trump or trample uh, sorry my English is my second language, right? Um, and so, I think one of the one of the initial ideas that we're going to bring into the usability studies is to mesh um, user experience with an UI layout for data with uh, accessibility. And what if we had a indicator on the chart that would indicate to the user whether or not they should read the chart from left to right or right to left? And so that that might be a possible solution where we integrate the best of all worlds to make reading charts more more uh, e- easier and, and more coherent.
0: So would the chart be just in one direction with an indication of how to read it?
1: Maybe it's a chart with one direction that with an indicator, like a little arrow that says, you know, you should read this from left to right or whatever. Maybe if you wanted the design to be robust, and, and people wanted to flip that, mm-hmm. then you could click on that little arrow and it would flip it to right to left. And then they would remember your preference, you know, but still, but still kind of, you know, indicate that, you know, a chart reads from, from a certain direction. And those are exactly the things are where is investing in, in terms of usability. Um, and this is where companies that, uh, you know, produce these solutions aren't aren't able to think about these things because they're not intentional about coming into this market, and they're not aware of this issue Correct. right so we're I guess we're very focused and we are very intentional about making sure that we spread the standardization so that it impacts design on the major platforms, right. And that's my other job, being able to reach out and take these standardization efforts and not keep them local. Make sure that they go to Unicode, make sure that they go to W3C. And, uh, and so that we have uh, a very uh, robust set of standards that's actually internationally recognized. Is Hebrew
0: very different from Arabic when it comes to all these issues? or
1: No. No, um just just to give people a a, a sample a, a example of first of all there's I think four hundred and twenty million Baidai speakers in the world. That's that's quite a large number. And I don't think people I don't think most um software developers uh understand that. Um there are differences between Hebrew and Arabic. Uh not a big deal. I think uh percent symbol positioning varies. Um and uh so uh there's, there's very little things that, you know, there's very small things. Um, not, not enough to say that this market is difficult because you have to tailor to every different locale, right? It's, it's, it's very few things that are, um, different. And, um, uh, I think if you have a robust enough platform, most of these things are handled for you. Mm hmm. In terms of UI layout, there's absolutely no differences, no differences. In terms of, of, of percent symbol positioning and the Arabic question mark is flipped. But if you have a really robust platform, that's handled for you. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and also Arabic uses uh, native digits, which are, uh, um, you know, some platforms uh, support that better than others.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you think about collaborating with someone from the Arabic countries?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, last time we talked was, what, a few weeks ago. And now that we're talking, there's already two countries that signed a peace agreement with Israel. So the Middle East is already a better place. Oh, nice. <laughs> and if there's anybody in the UAE or Bahrain that's watching this, <laughs> and uh, welcome to reach out. We, we'd love to chat. Uh, we've already put in a request through government. Uh, there's a government office for regional corporate cooperation. We've already put a request to uh, uh, reach out to our counterparts in UAE. Um, frankly, I don't need that office to do that. Uh, I, if I knew who the people were, we could just start working. I don't need this official. That that's never been my mo. I, I don't I don't do the official. Um, Um, But I I do have connections, for example, in Egypt, and we do have uh, people from Jordan helping us with the Israeli standards. Um, And when I was working at Microsoft, we worked with a a variety of people from the Middle East. Um, There's no reason um, that Israeli standards exclude Arabic from, from their standardization effort, and we actually were bringing in Arabic speakers to help us make sure that we're um, on par and, and, and take into account Arabic requirements, uh, because again, we want to be intentional about, you know, Israel, one third of the population are Arabic speakers. We want to be intentional about providing them an inclusive experience, a great experience. Um, and so that's why we're, you know, we're making our standards more robust, so that they include regional considerations and we, and the other And the other uh, uh, motivation behind that is, I want the Israeli standards to reflect regional requirements so that when I go to Unicode, I've already done that work. And so they're not going to, I don't know if Unicode or anybody else pushes back on me and says, have you made, did did you make sure your neighbors are included? And I'll, I'll say yes. Right. And so that's my, my motivation. That's why I'm intentional about doing these things so that they're very, very inclusive.
0: How can people participate in the usability studies? How are you planning to do it?
1: Yeah, we're we're gonna shape. Uh, we don't have a solid plan on the usability studies yet. Uh, I think designing them is a very, very f- fine art and profession, and that's why we have. You know, I I have a limited uh, limited experience with usability. I did market research at Microsoft, but I didn't do usability and and design research. I think it takes a very uh, uh, professional set of people to go and and make sure that that happens correctly. Because you want to make sure that you are doing usability in a way that really looks at things from all different angles and not just the angle that you're trying to prove, right? And so I'm very good about that. And I have some very opinionated people on my committee that think that things should go in a certain direction. And I say, I want those same people to be the devil's advocate, right? Like you want to look at things differently. And so I think it's going to be a set of usability studies that are done uh, in a professional environment where we bring people in. Uh, we were fortunate in Israel to have both Hebrew speakers, Arabic speakers, and even Farsi speakers. So we're able to do this very inclusive look at usability studies. And I hope that we're also able to crowdsourcing, crowdsourcing through the internet so that anybody that wants to participate, we're going to be able to, to include them so that we have a larger sample set. It's about creating that large enough, you know, the critical mass so that you have enough input. And so when the time comes, um, if you're, you can follow the committee's work on LinkedIn. Uh, we have a page there that I update, or you can follow me and i 'll make sure to announce that we're doing that kind of usability study and we'd love to have people you know participate uh all kinds of people, not just you know that's the other thing how do you get the right demographics, not the computer geeks how do you get the how do you get the teachers? how do you get the information workers how do you get the government employees? How do you get the people who work with these things day to day to participate in User research that's a very big challenge.
0: Mm-hmm. Anything else that you want to cover when it comes to Baidai? Um, no, I, th- I think, uh,
1: I-, I think we've covered most of it, yeah. Um, I, c- I can tell you that I'm very passionate about Baidai, um, and I'm I'm very good about asking people about their experience, and one of the things that um, drives me is to produce better experiences for people. Uh, I'll give you an example. My my oldest daughter goes to elementary school, and they're you know they have the elementary school has an Office 365 subscription, and they wanted to do the annual reports, you know, and they generated like a Word template. Somebody worked on the Word template very hard. It was a very you know templates can be tricky right but when you have multiple people editing uh, a template then it becomes even more tricky and when you have multiple people editing a, a document in bidei and the directionality of the text is so unintuitive in terms of the errors that the user can introduce um, that becomes a nightmare and my that my daughter's school actually had to pay an additional they actually had to hire an external company to provide a Office 365 based solution for like five grand, so that they're able to produce a. So they're able to produce these reports, and that just goes to show you that being intentional about going into a market, you know, maybe twenty years ago this was a you know a, a, a acceptable experience, but today it, it's it's not, and so. You have to be intentional and you have to keep being intentional about supporting
0: a market. What was the problem with the templates? I don't get it. Is it like the text input or just the way you get the templates?
1: So when you're typing in Word, for example, or, or even um, uh, Google Docs, um, there's a little control that says alignment, right? Like you can align the text in any direction. But in Bida, it's more complicated because you also have to adjust the, the text layout so that the order of the words is correct. So you could have left-aligned right-to-left text, that's not a problem, you could have, so if, if you wanted to have right-aligned right English sentences, you can have that, and they'll read correctly. But in Baida, if you align the text and get the layout incorrectly, then you're gonna have all kinds of characters just jump around, like the, the comma, the periods, the, the exclamation marks. Um, and so people will sit there for hours, trying to adjust the alignment and not the reading order, which is a different control. And that just goes to show you that the solution doesn't work anymore because it's not intuitive and the users just aren't aware of it. And it's not new. It's been there for 20 years, right? And so that's, that's a really big issue because it just goes to show that nobody's intentional about having a good experience there.
0: So, besides (laughs) baidai, clearly excited about, what are you curious about?
1: I'm curious about a lot of things. Um, Most recently I'm into the human design system, Mm -hmm. um, which is a system that allows a person to understand how their personality works, what are the mechanics of the personality, there's a few types in this. There's five types in, of personalities in this system, and uh, a very detailed map that helps you understand what are the unique mechanics that you have in you, and how how can you live in a more calibrated and precise way so that you feel um, that you're. Um, that you're feeling good, that you're correct, that you're living your life the way you're supposed to uh, on on many levels, right? And so being able to to look at that, that's one of the things where I found in the last few months, um, you know, personal development, you know, I thought for many years I was an alien. <laughs> Seriously, really? man, people what? just, <laughs> yeah, people looked at me and said, you know, what, you know what's going on here? What's, guys, all, you know, how do you? very unique, right? How,
0: how did it manifest to be an alien? Like, did you not fit in anywhere?
1: I had a, a, you know, living in the United States for 20 plus years, right? I always had a calling to come back to Israel. And so people around me would ask me, why? You know, you have a great job here. You're enjoying yourself. Life is good here. You know, it's, it's great. Why, why go back to Israel? And I always had a vision of going back to my house here in Israel that, I'm, you know, I returned three years ago. And um turns out my design is very sensitive to its location and its community. And it, if I'm not in the right place, if I'm not eating the right food, if I'm not around the people that I'm, I feel are supposed to be around me, then I'm not in the right place. Right? And so when I found that out, that all made sense. The other thing about my design is the only consistent thing about me is inconsistency right and i think we've talked about that like how do you handle that on the professional level right and so today when i'm you know i do um, a lot of consulting work how do you handle that on the consulting level because you have to deliver at a certain date right and so today i have a a relief when i i don't promise i try not to promise to deliver on a certain date not because i don't want to because you know, there's other things that are driving me. And so I try to give myself a larger, you know, uh, time frame to deliver on things so that I don't feel pressured and I don't feel miserable trying to accommodate for that, you know, that deadline. And so that's the human design system that I'm in. And that's been probably the biggest um, pivot that I've done most recently in recent months.
0: I can imagine that when you were working at Microsoft, it was pretty much deadline driven, right?
1: Um, No, Um, uh, I I was true enough to my design while working at Microsoft. I have to sample things. I have to be very having the need to sample things. I have to be very I need a variety of things around me. So when the manager or when my manager Um, you know, one of the things where they would let me do what I need to do was really letting me live my design and everybody around me thrive because you know, one day I'm working on text stacks, other days I'm working on UI layout, another day I'm working on user locales or whatever, and another day I'm talking about design robustness, right? So, every day is a different thing, so I'm it's not that I'm shooting all over the place. I'm sampling and giving a, a reflection. I'm a reflector, by the way. um 1.3% of the human population, the rarest type of design there is. And so I'm reflecting to them what I think is the vision forward, not necessarily working on it, uh, but allowing them to see things forward so that they're able to execute on it. And so when you have all these things together, I'm in heaven right and so deadlines yeah deadlines came and went some of my managers knew how to um leverage my design to amplify and that's the best thing you can do with somebody like me and other ones wanted to condition me which was the worst thing you can do because i anybody who's being conditioned is going to be miserable but anybody who's living their design is going to be very centered and very, very happy. And so I've had one manager that, that just knew that I don't think she was aware of human design, but she was very spiritual. And so working with her was great because she very quickly understood how my mechanics work and used that as, a, as the best tool you could, right? She used to send me out to understand the health of the organization, which is the, the, the highest level of what you can do with a reflector. Like go and talk to everybody because everybody can talk to you and not feel threatened and help me understand what the health of the organization is, right? So I can make the proper adjustments so everybody's happy, you know? And so th- that manager, by the way, was Anu Aurora, which now, you know, she left Microsoft to become a coach, which is the, the, the you know, knowing her like amazing how people that are centered and correct about their lives can find the path that is very correct for them very you know integrated with their whole view of life mm-hmm. you know? there's i mean i'm I'm so happy that she went that path and not you know didn't stay in technology company you know
0: um, so that's one of the things I'm into. But did you know about it before, or is it a recent thing? I th- no,
1: no, no. Um, I uh, after my divorce, I met a, my wonderful partner, uh, and uh, she started the. Um, you know, sh- she's into these kind of things. Um, and she signed up for the course and you know, one of the things to was to check was, you know, if you have a, a partner, what, what kind of type are they? And for, you know, we dated for a year before that and she looked at me and she said, you know, in my statistics of knowing people, you're just, you're different. You're not, you know, you're something about you. You're alien. I can't put my finger on it. And then, you know, they, they she said she, she opened the map. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> oh, now it all makes sense. <laughs> right. And so today, actually, I started, um, just today, I was in uh, my first class. There's a 6 months course, I think it's six months, um, where I'm practicing living my design. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And so very excited to have that happen, because I get to sample different people. I get to experience my design. I get to understand how these other designs work. And it's a, it's a very interesting thing for me to, to happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the other thing I do is I'm a paragliding instructor. I've been flying for 13 years, so I, on my free time, um, when I'm not advocating for the best Vida experience in the world <laughs> and more inclusive design and more uh, being more intentional about going into international markets is I jump off mountains and fly <laughs> for miles and miles and miles or kilometers where we're in the national biz- international business. Um, mm-hmm. It's an extreme sport, some say. Um, I find it rather relaxing.
0: <laughs> Thirty years, so you started in U.S. in the U.S.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I flew off. Uh, I used to fly a lot off Tiger Mountain in Seattle. That's where I learned. Um, and so it's one of those things where you know, one thing about paragliding isn't the. I'm not an adrenaline. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. It's very relaxing for me, but it it kind of makes sense for me to have a sport like that a wind powered sport because with wind power sport just like the ocean you never get the same day ever like you never get a wave that repeats itself you know i you'll never get an identical wave to repeat itself right whatever you fly that day or whatever you surf that day or whatever is never going to come back that moment will never come back and never be the same you'll you'll develop some patterns right like the air is more rowdy or the air is more calm but you'll never get the same experience over and over again because every every day is different and um having being a design that needs to sample a lot of things This is ultimate. This is never going to be boring for me because it's always different. And I'm always sampling it a little bit differently. And so it's been one of those things where I'm able to take that, you know, being an instructor and having flying alone is one thing. Being instructing people to fly off a mountain is a very different thing. And one of the things I learned from paragliding is how to manage risk, risk versus reward. And one of the other things I did is being able to take, I was able to take that into my work at Microsoft. How do you, how do you motivate people to take a risk, right? Some code has to be, get fixed. It's a risky thing. How do you change a user experience? How, how do you position yourself so that they're, I'm not, I'm, I'm motivating them to jump off the mountain essentially. Now I have to motivate them and have them look at it in a way that They feel that their reward is worth the risk and so a funny story about that is um, you know i i told you i I used to fight for my bugs you know when you have a a milestone based system at a certain level of the when you reach the end of the milestones you know you know that they stop fixing bugs because they want to stabilize everything and so only the toughest bugs get fixed or whatever and some things you have to live with And 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 most people would back away they say oh the bug bar is here now i'm not going to talk about this bug anymore i you know that's one of the things that made me great and great at microsoft it also got me into a lot of trouble because i was i'm so motivated about Being able to produce that great experience that when the bug bar came and I knew there was a one-line code fix that can fix a bug, regardless of how minor or bad it was, I'd go and fight for it. And I'd go through the bug bars. And I'd go through, you know, two days before we're shipping, I'm emailing the VP of engineering saying, hey, uh, thanks for surprising us Windows 10 was supposed to come out with the new, um, you know, there's a way to, uh, to, Uh, Clip text, right? Like you have the three dots, you know, when you have a string that you you clip. um, There's um, string clipping, it's called. Uh, So there's a way to do that with three dots. Well, they wanted to have a surprise and they decided to do like a fade effect. The design team thought a fade effect was great and the developer went and did that fade effect and he completely screwed it up for Byday so that leading edge of the strings faded away so you can't even read it and you know they're like oh we'll fix it down the road it's not so bad you know it's it's back to that unconscious cultural bias that we're talking about and um and uh and i said no um you know and they said who are you right who are you i said well let's let's play right like Let's let's put together. I've gotten better over the years with it. I said, "Why don't we put together an email, director level email, so they can say yes or no, right?" And if the director said no, I'd go to the VP level and say, "This is unacceptable. We've never shipped something like this, and I don't care what the feature team says. We're not doing this." And the VP level would agree. And then I, I was jo- I, I, I was I was laughing so hard one day because the VP. I, I had a bug that was escalated to the VP level. And the poor PM that was responsible for the feature was partying on a boat because we're at the end of the release and he gets a phone call (laughs) (laughs) and they're like, come back in, we have to fix this. (laughs) And he's like, where did that come from? Right. (laughs) And so being able to take those risks, being able to motivate people to take those risks is something that I brought from extreme sports, from paragliding and, um, and so that my my actually my secret weapon there was i had to motivate people sometimes and say i you know what do me a favor just go and fix this i'll take you out for a flight and you know their eyes were like
2: oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so that was my secret weapon and nobody knew about it was how do you um i, I don't know what you call it. it's not it's not the uh, how, how do you, it's not blackmail right it's uh, it's the opposite it's like how do you incentivize
0: bribing people
1: There you go. How do you bribe your developers to do stuff you...
0: (laughs) How would you motivate me? Because I share with you that I have fear of heights. Mm -hmm. So I think the experience would be great if I overcame the initial fear. So how would you motivate me?
1: There's, There's a few things you have to consider. First of all, the flight itself, if you're flying level, is very slow. You're doing about 15, 20 miles an hour. So it's kind of like riding a bicycle very quickly. There is no motor, uh, and if you do the flight at the right hour, there's no, like, turbulence, right? So the flight, you know, for somebody like you, when I take people up, I make sure to feel whether or not, like, one of the questions I ask people is, you know, if they say they're 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 afraid of heights, you know, only like 3 to 5% of the pop- world population is actually afraid of heights, where they step up on the ladder and, and become uh when have visually visual problems right like they they start seeing things right uh and if you don't have that issue then you you're not really scared of heights you know even I when I stand you know if you go up to the Space Needle in Seattle uh and and look down below you become scared right so it's more of a fear of falling and not the fear of heights and if you have just the fear of falling well that's that's okay you can overcome that. Um And so once you realize that, and if you have a good instructor, then you're able to have a calm flight. Like I would not do things to you like if you don't like roller coasters, if you're not the type that gets on a roller coaster because they like it, I'll have a very calm level flight with you so that you're able to have a great experience and you're able to feel that you've achieved something, even if you won't do it again ever. But you'll have that sense of accomplishment And that's back to the risk versus reward your reward versus the risk if you have the right person with you is substantially the reward is substantially better or bigger and you're able to walk from that experiencing from that experience and then challenge yourself to do other things and so that that would be my you know motivational talk to you (laughs) Thank you. Right, <laughs> <laughs> or anybody, anybody really.
0: Um, going going back to to localization, <clears throat> my notorious question: What do you think is wrong with our industry?
1: I, I, I think actually I no, I don't think. But I, localization is looked as the redheaded stepchild of everything of 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 of, uh, of the development process. And that's a, that's so it's a multi-dimensional problem. Problem, but I don't think you have um, the the robust enough experience. Whether it's design, you know, you don't have the robust end-to-end engineering systems today to make localization inclusive enough so that you're able to produce software that goes internationally without a huge overhead. It comes it's it's from the level of the research isn't inclusive in international markets, the design systems aren't robust and inclusive of design you know design considerations for different markets. So basically the the, the developer experiences aren't robust and and inclusive enough of international markets, and what happens is so every one of those pivot points is left to struggle with the shortfallings of their design or design systems, right, their systems. And and so how do you scale internationalization so that it doesn't become this mouth-to-ear kind of, you know, tribal knowledge, right? Like me and you know a lot about this and if we sat together, we could talk about it for hours, but imagine the poor developer that has to sit there and figure things out, or the designer that's trying to figure things out. They're still relying on this tribal knowledge and the technology hasn't been developed to have a robust enough end-to-end system that allows a designer to sit in front of a design system and have some kind of artificial intelligence uh, to, say hey you're going to mirror this for this locale here is what you should do or here's how we've done this for you and here's why you know so that you're able to have a system that's smart enough to not only do things correctly so that people that don't have the knowledge are able to come into these locales with very little friction but also to educate them as you do this this kind of work right and and, and today that's re, you know relying on people in the tribe, the internationalization tribe, the localization tribe and uh, and that has to transition into a technology-based solution so that we're able to scale, so that we're able to not be seen as a text, you know, we're perceived many times as a text. How many of our localization colleagues sit there and say, oh, you know, they, the design team finally let me sit on the design sessions, but they said, don't say anything. How what? i've heard that multiple times from different companies like the design team will let you sit in but they won't let you comment so that you don't disrupt their design process that's not being very inclusive you know and so that's an issue that's a real that's a culture issue that's a uh, uh, in a uh, technology issue how do we stop becoming a tax, you know and uh more so in big platform companies and companies that are in it for the long haul. Companies that are no longer intentional. Companies that have people transition from world to world. How do you make sure that tribal knowledge transition into significant improvements in design and engineering systems so that people don't make mistakes? I think that's our biggest challenge. That and the unconscious cultural bias that has to do with you know the R and D process in many companies when it comes to international users, and and I think that's a, that's that's a huge that's a huge iceberg, you know. so those are the the main things that concern me about the industry in general, uh, because you're seeing more and more big companies shrink their localization teams because the technology is there to do machine translation or whatever. And and if they think the localization team is just about translation, then they stopped innovating. You know that's when the innovation stopped because they're no longer think about their international user. They just think, oh, we're just going to relabel everything and should work. You know, and that that doesn't work. That that's when innovation stopped, and uh, that's a big concern.
0: I think this would be a great final words from you. <clears throat> But just in case you want to end more positively, what would be your final words to the industry, the people listening? Um,
1: Don't be afraid to be a trailblazer. Don't be afraid to challenge the status quo. Don't sit and think that the current standards and design systems and engineering systems aren't um aren't something that you can change like, don't be afraid to do it I, I i challenge them all the time um my next challenge is to challenge the unicode byte algorithm that hasn't changed in 20 years and that's that's a huge task but when you talk to some people they say you know we, we comply with standard and i say the standard isn't good enough and i think that's what i want i want all your trailblazers If you need your support, if you need my help, if you need your motivation, if you you want somebody to reflect with you on what you can do to challenge, to be forward looking, to make sure that our industry is robust and and full of value for years to come, you know, don't be afraid. Find somebody like me, find somebody like Andre that's sitting in front of me and, and do it, do it. You know, I'll be more than happy to to help.
0: Great. It's perfect. I have nothing more to add. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Looks like we finally made it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's it's always a
1: pleasure. Thanks for having these podcasts. They mean a lot.
0: Yeah, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Awesome. Have a great day. Bye.
1: All right. Cheers. Bye.